John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 51. I'd like to read that passage together before we begin. As always, if you can, I'd like for you to stand and join me together as we read God's Word together. John 1 verse 43 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, or Bethsaida, the city Andrew and, of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our great God, we are thankful to be here together. Lord, it's been a good time to celebrate the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus. Lord, you have no rival. You have no equal. Every word of that song is true. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your Son, as he is written about in your word, God, may we be faithful in our study. God, I pray that if I say anything today that is just my opinion, let that be forever forgotten in the ears of those listening. But Lord, may your word be what's remembered. May it change us. May we leave this room today more like your son Jesus than we were when we came in. May we now turn our attention to your word because it reveals who you are. And we pray this in your son's great name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was saying earlier, we are living in a difficult, different time. We're trying to get used to things. The phrase, the new normal, keeps coming up. Something happened yesterday, or this weekend, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, you might think, after I tell you, it's like, it's not really that big. But at least one family in here will celebrate. This weekend was opening day. Where are my Smiths? The Smiths, opening day. Who watched a baseball game yesterday on television? Anybody? Okay, three of us. All right, me and the Smiths. Excellent. So we're just going to talk directly in this direction. Um, if you did not watch opening day, first of all, it's a 60-game season. In my personal opinion, it doesn't really count, but we'll talk about that after the service. But in this 60-game season, they don't have any fans in the stands, but they've computer-generated or generated through the computer fans in the stands. It's, it's hilarious to watch, honestly. So there was a foul ball that headed into the, went into the stands, and nobody's in the stands. But all of a sudden, you see some computer-generated people. Some were, wearing, some were wearing, I was watching the Cubs game. Some were wearing Cubs jerseys. Some were wearing Brewers jerseys. And it wasn't really right because it, like, it was a 50-50. There were some wearing Brewers, some wearing Cubs. It's not Wrigley. No one, if you show up in a Brewers jersey at Wrigley, you'll get beat up. Um, so, so that wasn't real. But they showed fans, and they were just kind of simple movements. It was just, so there's a foul ball coming. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen when the computer, when the ball goes through that computer-generated person? Are they going to show like, uh, uh, you know, I'll let that mind go, or I'm thinking. Um, and then they piped in crowd. There are people on the Cubs team who never get cheered at Wrigley. I know this. All right? Some of these players bat like 150, 
and you got all the fans behind him going, you got this, go ahead. Nobody cheers for that guy that loud, but they're piping in cheering. I can't imagine that, what that's like to be at the stands, but what I did notice, and this happened yesterday, usually during a baseball game, the teams clamor back and forth at each other, talking, talking smack back and forth. Usually you can't hear it because the fans are there. You can hear everything now. A fight almost broke out between the Brewers and the Cubs over just something stupid. It was kind of like, this is going to be an interesting season. I don't know if it's going to be baseball or UFC, but this is going to be fun. But then they said, there's a rule. You can't fight because of COVID. <laughs> and then the announcer was like, so what do you do? You want to take a swing at the guy? Be like, you know what? COVID rules. Um, so we don't. But we, we live in that weird time. It's kind of weird. So sports are kind of back. Um, one thing that was difficult for us, one different for us, we had distance learning in our house for a while. Um, I'm thankful that distance learning happened when my kids were in middle school because I can still do that math. Um, otherwise, it's, tr- it's struggle. I want to talk to you a little bit about that today because I know my kids are getting older, and I get nervous as a parent when I'm going to see bigger math books come home and more complicated stuff come home. And, and I love my wife. She's great about it, but we're both going to be at a place where we're going to need to call somebody. So maybe today's message is more of a cry for help. Um, I'm going to need your help. So I want to show this next slide. Pretty soon, my kids are going to get into this kind of math where we talk about trajectory, all right? I, 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 don't, I think this is physics, but if I'm wrong, save your email. But this is a formula for trajectory. I mentioned sports earlier. I was watching the Cubs game, and whenever somebody hits a home run on, for the other team, they always show the ball kind of its trajectory. Have you ever seen that graphic that shows where it went? and how it came off the bat. I think that's a pretty cool graphic, but I don't understand why or how somebody can do that. This makes, this is difficult for me, but this next slide makes a little bit more sense. I can get that. You put it in sports. You gave me a picture to look at. Thank you. Now, admittedly, I still have no idea about trajectory. I know that if I kick a ball at a certain place, depending on how the angle I kick it, and maybe wind, and if I hit a bird, whatever, that, that ball's going to end up somewhere. You see, my mathematical ability comes to a screeching halt somewhere around middle school fractions. That's it for me. Although I do know one thing, and I can figure out one thing, the end of the pathway of any projectile is determined by the launching point. All right? The pathway of that projectile, or the end of that pathway of that projectile, is determined by its launching point. Now, barring anything hitting it or something, wherever I launch it from kind of depends on where it's going to go, or kind of decides where it's going to go. Today's passage is going to show us a launching point. It's actually going to show us several launching points. And then from this story today, we're going to see that launching point's effect in our lives. So again, I'm going to take a look at John 1, and I'm looking at verse 43. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, simply, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. Now, Nathanael is going to be an important part of the story, but let me kind of explain something. He goes by another name in our New Testament, Bartholomew. Bartholomew would be his surname, like his last name, son of Ptolemaeo. All right, Nathaniel, son of Tholomew. So when I use Nathaniel or Bartholomew, I'm talking about the same guy. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael says to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's response, Philip said to him, Come and see. You see, we have a lot going on in this story. But let's focus on Nathanael for just a second. For some reason, Nathanael had a problem in this passage. His problem was to hear that the potential Messiah could come from a city like Nazareth. That was unpleasant to him for whatever reason. We know that Nazareth was a small town. It had a, a poor reputation and a sense of very low poverty area. Perhaps Nathaniel could not wrap his mind around how the promised king of Israel would come from such a small town instead of one of the larger cities like Jerusalem or even Hebron. But notice something about Philip. We see the first launching point. Instead of trying to convince Nathaniel on his own, he didn't open up the Torah. He didn't open up the prophets to show him passages in Micah about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, just like he really was, or the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, just like Jesus was, or anything like that. Instead of trying to convince Nathaniel on his own, Philip makes the simple request that Nathaniel come and meet Jesus personally and see for himself. That's a simple request. That's all he does. So Nathaniel takes him up on it. He goes and sees. He follows Philip to meet this would-be Messiah. And then we get to this next passage. Look at verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, what's going on in that passage? This phrase that is used here, it's meant to be kind of a play on words. Because the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob, who late, whose name was later changed to Israel, was a man of guile and a man of deceit. As a matter of fact, the name Jacob literally means deceitful. It means heel grabber, all right? Someone who pulls your leg. So when Jesus makes this statement, it's revealing some important details about the rest of the story we'll see in a minute. Jesus' reference to Jacob here is going to come at the end of the story. It's going to come back up. And Nathanael is understandably confused at this greeting. Why? Because just like us, if somebody acts like they know us already and we've never met them, we think that's weird. We think that's really, really weird. And so Nathanael responds with this. He said, how do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Have you ever read that passage and thought, Nathaniel, you totally took a 180 there. You went from, can anything good come from out of this backwood town of Nazareth to, oh, you saw me under a fig tree once? You must be the Messiah. It's just some weird switch. How did this happen? How does he go from, can anything good come out of Nazareth to you are the son of God, the king of Israel? Now, I've read this passage in the past, and I, I really love looking at the Gospels and people's interaction with Jesus and his interaction with people. And I've often wondered what made Nathaniel respond the way he did to Jesus. So big deal. Jesus saw you under a fig tree. What's the point? Why this dramatic change? Now, if you know me, you know I like to have fun looking at background stuff. I'm a real nerd when it comes to history and language. I don't understand math, but language makes sense. History doesn't change. I love to study it. So let's take a look at this one. Here's where some background's helpful. 
Now, the Jewish writings were compiled, and there was also a text that was on how to live those Jewish writings. So we had the law, the, book of Mo- the books of Moses, and then there were some writings that went along with it that showed how to live those out. Think about a commentary, if you might have a study Bible here with you. You have some notes underneath those verses. It was called the Talmud. The Talmud was the commentary on the Torah. So think of the study notes. Just like in a Bible, we wouldn't look at those study notes as inspired. This Talmud wasn't inspired. It was just rabbi's commentary on how to live the Torah. Now, here's why. It says this. The Talmud challenged men to read and reflect on the Torah, the law, under a large tree at least once a day. Now, you might think, okay, that's a big deal. Let's keep going. The fig tree was often used for this. Have you ever seen a fig tree? These are big trees. The fig tree was used as shade for learning by later rabbis, as well as being a symbol for the messianic peace and abundance that's coming in the kingdom. So we see a background here with this tree thing. Now, in his book, Christian, uh, the Christian musician and author Michael Card, in his book, The uh, Parable of Joy, uh, commentary on John, he writes this. The key to unlocking the mystery, this mystery of Nathaniel's change, is Jesus' reference to the fig tree. Notice something for a minute. Does it say in the text earlier that Philip saw Nathaniel under a fig tree? Who's the first person to bring up a fig tree? It's Jesus. Philip doesn't mention it. Philip does, I mean, John doesn't mention it. Philip saw him there. Jesus brings it up. It was a reference to the fig tree, and this had both symbolic and significance in Israel, the fig tree, as a sign to the nation. But Jesus' words would have had more than symbolic meaning. The fig tree was a common place for prayer, especially for young rabbinic students, which Nathaniel may well have been. If he was specifically under a fig tree when Philip called him, chances are he was in prayer. See, this is why I love, you're like digging in and finding like, you're doing a whole CSI thing trying to figure out what's being said here. All right? This is interesting fact, because it, but it doesn't fully explain the drama of the story. So what, we might say? His prayers were interrupted. After all, he did seem a bit irritated. The final piece of the puzzle involves first century rabbis teaching about prayer. The Jewish believer was taught that he who, when he prays, does not pray for the coming of the Messiah has not prayed at all. That's what the rabbis taught their students. He who does not pray for the coming Messiah has not prayed. With the rise of the Pharisaic movement, which is basically a back-to-the-Bible group, the, the hope for the coming of Christ had been reawakened. People were excited about the Messiah. It was on everyone's mind and in everyone's prayer. Thus, if Nathaniel had been at prayer, chances are he was praying for the Messiah. Perhaps this is why Jesus refers to him as a true Israelite. His faith was focused on waiting for, his, for the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus tells Nathanael he saw him under the fig tree, the implication is, and it's just an implication, that Nathanael put two and two together in his mind. Only one person could have known, could have heard his solitary prayer for the Messiah, the Messiah himself. 
As the pieces fall together in his heart and mind, Nathanael finds himself on his knees. The true Israelite declares, Jesus is the king. So Jesus declaring that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree was more than just some awareness of his location. It was an awareness of Nathanael's heart's desire. He who, pray, he who when he prays does not pray for the Messiah has not prayed. So he's, when Jesus shows up here, he's showing him, he's an awareness of Nathanael's heart's desire. And it's that desire that Jesus came to meet. Now, we're going to look at this here in a little bit more, a more, more in a moment. But this event changes everything for Nathanael. He's no longer concerned with Jesus' land of origin or his own preconceived notions about the Messiah. He's focused on a person now. His focus now is on a person, the person, the one who's been waiting for in his next statement of promise. Jesus' next statement of promise wraps up this whole passage. In verse 50, it says this, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, here again, Jesus is alluding, like I said earlier, to Jacob. Primarily, Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 19. Here's what it says in Genesis 28, 10 through 19. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There's, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone which had, he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city Luz, or was Luz at the first. You see, after his dream, Jacob called that place Bethel, which meant house of God, because God chose to reveal himself to Jacob in that place. Now, holding that back to John 1, when Jesus uses the phrase ascending and descending on the Son of Man, what is he saying about himself? What in Jacob's dream is he saying the Son of Man is? Where were the angels descending and ascending on? The latter. Jesus is saying something pointed here. Jesus is saying here, that he is that ladder from Jacob's dream. You see, the Son of Man replaces the ladder as the means and access to heaven from earth. You see what Jesus is saying here? All this stuff can get lost if we look past it too quickly. You see, in using this illusion, Jesus is claiming to be the decisive, ultimate connection between heaven 
and earth. God is now revealing himself to people, not at Bethel, not at a specific location, not even at the temple, but through Jesus. Jesus is now the means and access between heaven and earth, God and man. And he's telling Nathaniel, this is what you're going to see. You follow me, Nathaniel, you're going to see this. You're going to see every day in everything I teach, in every, every person I heal, and ultimately in my crucifixion and resurrection, you're going to see that I am that access and that there is no way to the Father but through me. You see, in this event, as well as in the larger episode of chapter 1, John, the writer, is identifying Jesus as the heart and core of the gospel. For John, Christianity is simply not meant to be a philosophy of life, something that you find out that works for you. That's not all it's about. Christianity for John, the author of this, this book, centers on a person who is the core of everything Christians believe. And now the story of Nathaniel illustrates this perfectly. You see, Nathaniel's faith is centered on the one he's been faithfully praying for. But this event in 1 John, I'm sorry, John 1, is just the launching point. All this point, all this up to this point is just the kick. It gets Nathaniel moving. And now that he's found him, Nathaniel's life is set on a trajectory that's ultimately going to lead to him giving up his life for this person, Jesus. Now, for a second, I want you to track for a moment with me what I'm going to call the gospel trajectory of this passage. First, Nathaniel's first response to this possible would-be Messiah is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Basically saying, yeah, Philip, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. It would be like we're in election year. It would be like you finding a candidate you're all in on, and you go and tell somebody, and they're kind of jaded with politics. And they go, yeah, okay, he's probably going to cheat. He, she's probably going to lie, right? Whatever. Good, good luck, Philip. Matter of fact, there have, had been at that time some false messiahs that had already come, and Nathaniel was just kind of being jaded here. So the next part, Jesus then declares that he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. From there, this knowledge causes Nathanael to make a declaration. Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And then Nathanael becomes a disciple of Jesus. He's present for Jesus' ministry, and he's still a disciple of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, what we know about Nathanael, the rest of what we know, is found in the record of his martyrdom in A.D. 70. John's letter, or John's uh, book here, was written in the 90s, around 85 to 90 AD, about 15 to 20 years away from Nathaniel's death. And I think it's important here. Nathan Jesus, oh, sorry, John records Nathaniel's following of Jesus, his conversion, because John also knows what, took, what, what went down with Nathaniel. Now, what I'd like to do here is read this. I want to read for you the account of Nathanael's martyrdom. One of the original 12 disciples, Nathanael, had boldly preached for 37 years. Starting in the heathen cities throughout what is now Turkey, 
He didn't travel to India. After, or here, after he learned the language, he translated the gospel of Matthew and taught the individuals in their native tongue. Later, he preached in 12 different cities in the country of Armenia. Many people turned, um, any people turned uh, from following after, uh, after these gods of the time to following after Jesus, including the king of Armenia's brother and his family. You are unsettling the worship of our gods, said the king of Armenia. And not only that, you have perverted my own brother, the king shouted. But Bartholomew did not back down. Bartholomew boldly answered the king, saying, I have preached the true worship of God throughout your country. I have not perverted your brother and his family. Rather, I have converted them to Jesus and to the truth. The king, Astyges, threatened Nathaniel, unless you stop preaching Christ and make sacrifices to the god Ashtaroth, you will be put to death. Now, remember how Jesus described Nathaniel, a true, a true Israelite of no deceit? He, tells, he kind of just tells you what like it is. Nathaniel says, you can be sure of this, King Stiges, I'll never sacrifice to your idol. I would rather see on my seal my testimony with my blood than to commit this smallest act against my faith and conscience. Upon hearing this, the king ordered, I want this man to suffer severe torture. First, beat him with rods. After that, suspend him upside down on the cross and skin him alive. Following the king's command, Bartholomew was beaten, crucified, and flayed. Despite all this, and still conscious, he continued to exhort the people to believe in Jesus and worship him as the one true God. While he's being tortured and beaten beyond my, by my only thoughts, he's still telling people, the people who are torturing him, to believe in Jesus. Finally, to prevent him from saying anything else, the king's men took an axe and beheaded him. Nathanael was united with Jesus, his Lord. You see, Nathanael undergoes horrific martyrdom in 70 AD for his refusal to deny that Jesus is the Son of God who was raised from the dead. This story was read by me as a new believer, fresh into Christianity. I remember over at the college being in the Couch Learning Center and reading this story. And this story just kind of stuck with me. And I started thinking to myself, why would a guy go through this for a lie? You know, the, the idea that the disciples just made this up for fame. Why would he go through that for a lie? I got to think that as they're starting to w torture him in these horrible ways, that he's going to give in if he knew it was a lie. And I'll just be honest. If I knew it was true, I'm going to be tempted when they start torturing to give in. But what makes Nathaniel do what he, did, what he does? What does he, he goes through what he went through. Because he had seen the risen Jesus. And because Jesus had been the one who saw him. And because Jesus was the one he had been praying for, Jesus was the answer to his prayer to God under that fig tree, and he's not going to deny his master. So honestly, when we spend time in the kingdom, we're in heaven. I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. But by then, I can hug Nathaniel, because I don't think there'll be COVID rules there. Because his testimony 
sealed in his blood, is evidence to me that he saw something on resurrection day because you don't make this kind of stuff up and suffer for it. So Nathaniel goes through this. So I want you to take a look at trajectory for a second. Nathaniel follows Jesus. He suffers. His story affects this young kid in a Bible college. Who knows where it goes after that? Who knows? I've told my kids this story. Who, who knows what God's going to do in their lives through that? I've just told you this story. You may have never heard it before. Who knows what God's going to do in your life through this? You see how this trajectory keeps going? You see, here's the key. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is where did this start? Where did this whole thing start? Here it is. Philip found Nathaniel. Notice this. Philip found Nathaniel. You see, John records that the very first thing Philip does after being called by Jesus himself is to share this calling with someone else. Now, we don't have any idea about a previous relationship between Philip and Nathaniel. All we know is Philip found Nathaniel. That's all we know. Whatever the relationship was, whether it existed or not, whether these were the first things he ever said to the guy, we see that Philip cannot keep silent about who has called him. His excitement over this calling leads him to invite others to join in. So let me ask you this question. What do we take away from this? What do we learn today from this passage? What can we learn from Nathaniel's story? Number one, making disciples is everybody's responsibility. Making disciples is everybody's responsibility. Where do we see that? With Philip. Philip had just gotten two words from Jesus, follow me. And now Philip becomes this evangelist. He's going to share with, with others. Philip doesn't wait for Jesus to invite Nathaniel personally. Philip, in his excitement of being asked by this possible Messiah to follow him, cannot help but share this news with any he comes in contact with. He can't wait. He comes to Nathaniel. He sees a guy possibly praying under a fig tree, praying for this coming Messiah. And Philip goes, hey, come and follow me, or come and let me show you a guy that could be the Messiah. You're praying for him. There was an open opportunity right there, and Philip doesn't miss it. Philip doesn't walk by the tree and say, you know what? If he's here again when I come back, I'll do it. He's not walking by and going, you know, I really don't know Nathaniel. He seems, he's kind of a, a mouthy kind of guy. He kind of says what he's thinking. Not my personality type. Maybe somebody else will come. Peter. Peter's the guy. Peter and Nathaniel, perfect. They'll get along great. They're both mouthy. But maybe not me. He just doesn't wait. And that leads us to the next takeaway. Making disciples begins at home, either in one's family or one's hometown. You see, Philip doesn't wait to share his excitement. He finds Nathaniel and invites him to come and see. I'm reminded uh, as, a, as an undergrad at, at Piedmont, we have students who are in the missions program. And you could, my wife and I would, uh, at the time we were dating and we were, um, well, let's just say we're jerks. And we would like observe things. And we would, we would always kind of amazed at how those who had sold their lives into missions couldn't wait to talk about missions every time you got around them or, or whatever. They would very rarely share their faith with people who would walk across campus. People we'd see all the time. It was, it was always kind of weird. And I thought, well, wait a minute. 
you're, you're selling out to go overseas to share the gospel, but Jesus brought somebody right here and sat beside you and you kind of ignored them? You know, and wasn't planned, but that's, that's why we need to support more missionaries like Adam and Faith Drake, who while have been here, have looked for ways they can serve this church and serve this community and serve the people in this community. Why do I want to give money towards the Drakes for their work? Because they're, I know they're doing the work. Why? Because they're doing it on Broad Street. They're doing it here. I know they're doing it there. You see, it begins where you are. It's not about where you go later. It's about right now. So my question to me is, am I doing this? Am I encouraging my family, my wife, my kids to come and see that Jesus is the Messiah? Or do the pursuit, or let me ask this, do the pursuits of my life, my day-to-day activities, show my family, my friends, my neighbors, my fellow church members, that Jesus is worthy, more than worthy of my adoration and my submission? Am I living like that in front of you? And like before, this point leads to my next point. Number three, making disciples promotes the Lord, not ourselves. It promotes the Lord and not ourselves. You see, the goal of Philip was not to convince Nathaniel that Philip was justified by his choice to follow after Jesus. Right? I mean, Nathaniel goes, can anything come out of Nazareth? He's basically saying, Philip, you're wasting your time on somebody from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? I'm reading the Torah. He's not coming from Nazareth. Not a backwoods town like that. Now, I don't know how you handle when people judge you by your decisions, but something comes up in me. I'm like, oh, okay. We're going to prove this. Let's have a debate right here in this public place. It's never going to go well there. Philip could have taken the time to justify his decision, but he doesn't. He simply uh, suggests that Nathaniel come and see. He wasn't seeking to defend his decision, rationalize it, or even validate his belief in Jesus. He just says, come and see. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, when people are talking about to defend Jesus against the critics of the day, he said, you don't defend a lion, you just let it out of the cage. Philip is just letting Jesus out of the cage. Come and see. You see, making disciples is not about promoting oneself or creating some logically constructed argument. Even though those things are important, the, the argument is important. Having a, knowing what you're talking about is very important. That's key. But making disciples is about inviting others to find true life in Jesus. Come and see. And then finally, making disciples is a present work with a future trajectory. For a moment, think about your path. What event or events led you to this present point in your life? Choices you made, meetings you had, relationships. Truth be told, our stories are often intertwined with the stories of others. You could probably share something in here with me, and as you share your story, you're going to name someone else in this room. See, when we look back on where we've come, we inevitably inevitably see faces along with events. So think about the faces in your story, in your path. Why are they on your path? What significant contribution to your story did they bring to your path? 
Are the faces in your story those who were so excited about their calling that they were compelled to invite others to join? How does your face appear in the story of others? Are you contributing for the gospel good in the path of others? I chose that phrase for the good on purpose because truth be told, we can easily affect others' path for the negative. When our interactions with one another are laced with negativity of life rather than the goodness of God, when our conversations are more focused on the temporal than on the eternal, when our actions and attitudes reflect our pursuits of comfort and pleasure rather than our abandonment to His sovereignty and Him being glorified, we can affect others for the negative. There's a Swiss theologian, F.L. Godet, who once said making disciples was like this, one torch serves to light another. Now, even though this appears to be a simple cliche, there's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. You see, a lit torch can light other torches. And if the torch is not lit, it can't, not, it can't light another. Ultimately, it's this, you replicate what you are. You replicate what you are. Let that sink in for a minute. We are constantly making disciples. Let that sink in for a second. You're like, oh, I don't think I'm doing that. You are. We are constantly making disciples with how we live, how we interact, how we portray Christ, or how we do not portray Christ. We are making disciples constantly. The question is, what kind of disciple are you making? What kind of disciple am I making? Are they followers in the way of Jesus, or are they followers in the way which I feel is right for them? What kind of disciples am I making in my, with my neighbors, friends, family, my kids? What will the end result of the, their trajectory be because of my influence in their life? What will be the end result of those you come in contact with, the end result of their trajectory because of your interactions with them? May it be said of all of us in this room today that our part in the gospel trajectory of others served to help them find and pursue life in Jesus, just like Philip did with Nathaniel and that Nathaniel has done for countless others. Will you pray with me today? Our Father and our great God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this story that the Apostle John saw fit to include in his presentation of Jesus. Father John even says, Jesus did many other things, many other signs, many other miracles, but the things that were written were written, chosen by John for one purpose, so that we who read it would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would find life in his name. So he's chosen this passage, this story of Nathaniel, for a reason. Lord, I'm thankful that he did. And Lord, I'm thankful that you saw fit to call Philip to follow you. And that Philip didn't waste time. He found Nathaniel at the right moment when Nathanael was praying for the Messiah, Philip offered him an answer. Nathanael came in his skepticism, 
And Jesus proved he is who he says he is. And that set Nathaniel's life on a trajectory that would ultimately lead to his martyrdom for the faith. And that that martyrdom would affect me, would affect others. Thank you, Father. So now as we take that truth, we'll stand at a place. We now stand in the gospel path of others. For some, you're asking us to assist them in their launching point, to share Christ. For others, to engage them where they already are. But God, for whatever reason, whatever purpose you have for us, may we be faithful. May we truly believe what we've sung already, that you have no rival, you have no equal. Whether it be our preferences, our comforts, our worries and our fears, nothing stands against you. So Lord, when you've called us to interact with others, to make disciples, Father, help us to be faithful in doing so. So that years from now, somebody may say, it was because of this person that I found Jesus. And we pray this all in your son's great name. Amen.